This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The Apostle Paul was a preacher to the Gentiles, a missionary, a church planter, and ultimately a martyr for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was also a theologian of wisdom. He used the Greek noun for wisdom, Sophia, 28 times in his epistles. If we look at how he used this word, it is striking how often the idea of wisdom appears in some of his most famous passages. For example, in the doxology of Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. That's from the ESV. Most of the time, Paul's direct discussion of wisdom occurs in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, and Colossians, and so this is where we'll focus our attention in this episode. This is Season 6 of Office Hours, and our theme is To Know Wisdom. Joining us in studio is Professor Joel Kim. He teaches New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. He's co-editor of and contributor to Always Reformed, essays in honor of W. Robert Godfrey. With all the other faculty books, this title is available through... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. And he joins us to help us understand the Apostle Paul's teaching on wisdom. Hi, Joel, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks for having me back, Scott. What is your working definition of wisdom? To be honest, I actually never thought about defining wisdom. It's one of those concepts and thoughts that one assumes that everyone knows about. I would imagine some people can think of wisdom as primarily content-driven, that it's knowledge about various facts. Others, this was true in the first century as well, that uh, wisdom is about the ability to articulate and communicate. It's about this kind of communication abilities. Or it can be something completely beyond. I actually, having gone through our faculty conference a couple weekends ago, I do like the definition that was given at one point about living well. It was one of the simplest way of defining it. Perhaps if I can parse that out a little bit further is to say simply it's a proper understanding of reality that leads to proper behavior in everyday life, I guess is one of the ways to kind of stretch that out and fill in the details a little bit. You are a Paul scholar, and you're a scholar of the history of the interpretation of Paul. And one of the major themes, arguably, in Paul's writings is the theme of wisdom. And yet, when we think of Paul, particularly in our context, and especially you know being in the Reformed churches, and then if we think about the academic context for the last 25 or 30 years with all the discussion of the new perspectives on Paul, it might be surprising. Surprising, or is it, to see how important wisdom is in his theology? And if that's so, why is it so? Well, to sound somewhat smart here, Scott, I brought some statistics for you. I like math anyways. Paul referred to wisdom, or often the Greek word many people are familiar with in name, Sophia, quite often, in fact, more than any other New Testament authors. He uses it 44 times out of 71 occurrences in the New Testament. But that's not the only kind of word he uses, obviously. He uses other synonyms that are related to one another in the same kind of word group or semantic field as we understand it. Words such as understanding, planning, evaluating, intelligence, knowledge, perception, 
intention, purpose, instruction, are all these words that Paul uses quite frequently as a supplement to the discussion of wisdom as we understand it. Now, it's not surprising to us he would, and you bring up the point that perhaps we don't think of Paul as a writer of wisdom literature, primarily because we have so categorized wisdom in certain categories, but he existed, or he lived at a time where this kind of wisdom and discussions of wisdom were fairly commonplace around him, not only because he is a Jew, having grown up with Old Testament instruction, where he has intimate knowledge and instruction in wisdom literature, such as Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, or Psalms, or many others, which he often cites in the first place. He also grew up in a Greco-Roman Hellenistic society, where the notion of wisdom and sophistry was a something not only aspired to, but desired by the philosophies of the time, as well as the religions of the time. So, we can even say that the notion of wisdom was in the air in the times that he lived in, and perhaps not surprisingly, such concepts are incorporated into his writing of the New Testament. Since it was so prominent, right, since it comes up so often in his writings, one would think that it would receive more attention than it does. And maybe I'm missing something. In Pauline studies, is this a major topic of study? It's hard to answer, I think, quantitatively, you know, what's considered more common or more popular part of the studies. I mean, a lot of the, I think, directions of academic studies as well as writings are driven by a lot of circumstantial issues in theological discussions, as well as different interest level and so on. So, does wisdom get the kind of attention that perhaps his own emphasis seems to demand? Probably not. It doesn't mean that it's under-discussed. Obviously, it does appear oftentimes in the writings, especially in the writings of Colossians and Corinthians. Those are unavoidable issues when you read through Paul's writings. But you may be right in saying that given the significance of uh, such discussion, I mean, you never hear of Paul as a wisdom writer, nor do you see Paul simply associating with the notion of wisdom. He is so often associated with theological battles and issues and the historical issues of the first century. Perhaps the idea of wisdom doesn't get its due as it deserves. Maybe that also has an effect then on the way, not only that people perceive Paul, but the way they perceive the Christian faith and the Christian life. I just had a discussion with a group of people recently about uh, discovering the will of God, and my case to them was, rather than looking for a direct revelation from God in order to figure out what to do next, it seems to me that the categories of wisdom and illumination are more valuable for us who receive the scriptures as the completed special revelation of God, the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God to which nothing should be added or taken away. Given that, we need to ask for illumination, and we need to ask for wisdom in order to make good choices. I I wasn't sure that everyone was completely satisfied with that approach. You know, I think you may be right on on that, Scott, in, in the sense that in terms of us reading the Word and us practicing what the Word teaches, oftentimes we fall into a pitfall. On the one hand, exegetically, we think that somehow where we open up our Bible and looking for commands or explicit teachings are the 
only ways Scripture teaches us in terms of our conduct and the way we ought to live our lives. But oftentimes, that's not exactly how Scripture speaks to us. Scripture, especially in the writings of Paul, often speaks in principles, understanding the world around us with a perspective that allows us to make decisions, not because each question has an answer that can be found in Scripture, which many people seem to assume, but that it's an extension or good and necessary consequence of the things that are already taught and expounded. And I I do think that there is a sense that perhaps because of a certain exegetical tradition or history from which we come, where the notion is it's got to be literal, explicit, found in Scripture before we believe them to be really divine word, maybe it does stunt the way we read Paul and sometimes apply what he's actually teaching. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. How does Paul tend to use the ideas of wisdom? How does he employ it in his epistles to the churches to whom he wrote? Oftentimes, one thing that you notice about Paul, which I would imagine is true for all the New Testament authors, many of us can assume, is the fact that wisdom is understood in the mind of Paul to be equated with Jesus himself. I don't think it's a unique contribution of Paul, but Paul sees wisdom as being personified and found in Jesus Christ and him alone. And I think that's a very important point for us to remember and recognize that the Old Testament understanding of God as both the creator as well as a redeemer, where even Proverbs in chapter 8 refers to God as a divine workman, a master craftsman. We see that creating as well as redeeming wisdom of God found in Christ Jesus, and Paul makes that direct connection. From that point on, who Christ is, what he imparts to us, and what he teaches us all become foundational for our own gaining and growing in wisdom and application of those wisdom in our lives. And if you look at the epistles, oftentimes, wisdom is something that is practiced for those who are either clothed with Christ or who has become a new man. The ability to be able to discern and understand the created world as God created it, and to see our proper place within that world in which we are created, and to be able to live out our lives both in speech and thought and actions. That's accordance with the Word, not because of its explicitness, but because of our union with Christ and who He is in terms of who He has made us to be in Him. That's a good opportunity for us, a good opening for us to begin looking at the way Paul uses wisdom in his epistles. And so let's start with 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and following, where he begins his discussion of wisdom and his application of that idea to a particular case. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, and he quotes here from Isaiah 29, 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God." For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God 
is stronger than men. Okay, so this is a rich passage on which we could easily spend the rest of the episode. Maybe we should. And perhaps we will. He contrasts here two different kinds of wisdom, and he sets them against one another starkly and even engages in some irony. So help us to understand this. 1 Corinthians 1-4, through this is pointed out by many, that has the highest concentration of wisdom words in the writings of Paul. Clearly, it's one of the important issues that Paul addresses here. And if you see the overall theme of 1 Corinthians in particular, there is a division within the church. I mean, it's a very practical book in light of the fact that there is a circumstance here that Paul is addressing of groups within the church that are disputing and separated from one another. One of the reasons that seems to plague the church in Corinth was the issue and the place of wisdom, both in terms of their theology and their practice. He even points this out in verse 22, where Greeks seek wisdom, he says. That's the ethos of that time. And then there are individuals who are considered quite a bit wiser than others because of their abilities. Individuals he names as scribes, one who is wise, one who is the debater of this age. These are all individuals seen not only by the world outside the church, but also world inside the church in Corinth as people who are wise. Thus, we see this disputations of people who are more eloquent who seem to be much more presentable in terms of their argument and what they say, standing out in the minds of many. And what Paul does here is that he confronts that fairly directly, that the church in Corinth, which is supposed to be the salt and light of the world, in reverse, unfortunately, has adopted the priorities as well as the successes of the world around them. And one of those issues is the issue of wisdom. And in this, he contrasts between two wisdoms. And the way he talks about these wisdoms is, on the one hand, he talks about this wisdom that can be described as eloquent wisdom in verse 17, which can be translated wisdom of speech, right, of some kind. Or in verse 20, wisdom of the world, he says. It comes from the world. Chapter 2, verse 5, where it says wisdom of men. Verse 6 talks in chapter 2 about wisdom of this age, which actually comes from the rulers of this age. And then he says in verse 13 in chapter 2, simply, human wisdom. Not only are the words wisdom repeated, he is pointing out that these things are earthly, worldly, human, and at least very spiffy on the outside wisdom that many people herald and really enjoyed. However, contrast to that is the wisdom that comes from God. Wisdom that is from God and of God is how he makes the distinction. Now, in turning that into the discussion of the gospel, he said, if the worldly earthly human wisdom is to be accompanied with the gospel. He says in verse 17, the gospel will be emptied because it's ultimately meaningless. Conversely, if indeed the wisdom that is associated with the gospel is of God and from God, that's when the power actually comes. It's this spiritual work that takes place where, as he says, he came to them in this wisdom so that they may understand and recognize the power of the cross. Because at least in his mind, if the worldly wisdom is what's at work within the church, whatever we do looks foolish. To the world that sees wisdom as a certain thing, to believe in Jesus, who is a carpenter's son, born of a woman, to follow him to the cross where he dies on behalf of his people, a death that is reserved for the lowest of lows in that society, seemingly is not only powerless and futile, it seems foolish. 
But when you seek it from the wisdom that comes from God and in Christ, here that reality of weakness, that reality of the apparent weakness, is the demonstration of not only his power, but demonstration of his wisdom. So he contrasts between the two, and he is basically rebuking many in the church in Corinth for following the worldly wisdom and reminding them, despite the fact that divine wisdom looks foolish and weak, that's where the truth is found and where the gospel is proclaimed. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Do you think it's fair to try to apply this a little bit to our circumstances to say that Paul is setting up a contrast between that which is truly powerful but looks weak and that which looks powerful but which ultimately is empty? I think that is um, a wonderful way of putting it, Scott, and I appreciate you making what I said sound much better in a shorter amount of time. (laughs) Yeah, but I think that's exactly right. I mean, to put it in a way that perhaps is oversimplifying, but the wisdom that comes from God is otherworldly. And as being otherworldly, here it possesses power and impact and purposefulness that this world may not see but it's truly present. And the church is often tempted to mistake the one for the other. Clearly true. I mean, we can give a lot of examples. And I realize that Reformed folks can be viewed and seen by many as being very fuddy-duddy, you know, overly critical, etc. And so, I don't want us to think in a direction that somehow we think that everything happens in the churches these days are wrong by any means. But if you want to look at it from a worldly view versus, let's say, what Scripture teaches is divine wisdom, I do think that there are a lot of things that carry a lot of power that looks foolish. For instance, preaching is one prime example of what can be viewed by many as a passe activity. Uh, It might have had its effectiveness, but that day has long gone, many people believe, and other medium might be better suited for our generation and our present time. We live in an era when one of the operative terms is dialogue. But a sermon is a monologue, and so we gather every Lord's Day, every Sunday, every Sabbath, and one of the chief features of a Christian worship service is the event that occurs when the minister stands before the congregation, reads a text of Scripture, and then explains it and preaches about it, preaches to the congregation, announces the law and the gospel for usually 20, 25, 30, or more minutes every week. Now, that, as you were suggesting, in our context, that might seem almost retrograde and backwards. To be honest, retro is now in. So maybe we will come back in full circle to really appreciate both the beauty and power of preaching. But my brief experience in ministry as well as just living daily reminds me that that's not really the case. I mean, it's not only not the case for unbelievers who see preaching as such an old, 
arcane and archaic way of communicating, but I fear that many in the church also feel very similarly in terms of its importance and centrality within worship. I mean, to give another example, I mean, worship itself may seem very old school to a lot of people, that believers would come on a Sunday, a day off for many who work very hard to make their living, and to come and spend an hour or two or three or four hours living in the Word, hearing the Word being proclaimed, oftentimes a Bible study, attending worship within a communion of believers, may seem to be unbelievers to be really just a waste of time. Better time could have been spent, more money could have been earned, better ways of entertaining oneself could be found. But from our perspective, obviously worship becomes a time of encounter with the Lord, in many ways a preparation for heaven. That we find worship to be boring is not a statement about worship itself, since what Scripture seems to teach us about heaven does include major components of eternal worship. And so, it speaks more about our present condition and our understanding rather than the worship itself. But at least from the perspective of the world, and I fear sometimes within the church as well, worship seems so arcane, so less than ideal, so not effective in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. And perhaps we're going too afield here, but I do believe that this struggle still exists, that many of the things that Scripture teaches us about in terms of our lives seem to those who are outside of Christ to be really foolish, but yet within it is found true wisdom and power of God. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Which again is what Paul says, for the word of the cross, so the announcement of Jesus' death in a shameful way is foolishness or folly to whom? To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... So, to those of us who've been given new life by God's sovereign grace and who through that grace, by grace, through faith in Christ are being saved, it's the power of God. And so, there's a paradox there. And he goes on, having quoted Isaiah 29, to ask, where is the one who is wise? So, he really challenges those who are sort of posturing in the Corinthian congregation as wise, as powerful, as influential. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Tell us a little bit about two things. One, the debater, and two, this age. Because that phrase, this age, is a loaded phrase in Paul's theology. Yeah, you know, he is adopting the language and concepts of those who are on the other side of him. And, you know, it's almost a apologetic move on his part. So he's picking up the rhetoric of his opponents. Very much. I mean, this is about as wise as one can possibly imagine. But rhetorically speaking, he's borrowing the language of those who are opposite of him and turning that upside down in terms of what he wants to get to. And to be honest, this notion of debater is an interesting one because, you know, I began talking about this earlier. A lot of different ways one can define what wisdom wisdom is and how wisdom is seen and practiced overall. But one of the popular forms of understanding wisdom and seeing wisdom in others was this ability to debate, articulate one's argument, that it was far less about substance. I don't mean to say that substance was completely unimportant, but substance was less than what was required to be considered wise. But being persuasive. Rhetoric. Uh, the ability to move people, the ability to persuade people. Well, that sounds familiar. Oh, uh, very. 
right? That doesn't sound alien to our existence. I mean, don't people love a good fight on the internet? If you want to get people wound up, you know, just pick a fight and you'll draw a crowd. On television, we have all these political talk shows where people go at each other and they get big ratings, at least sometimes, because we like to see a debate. And we're attracted to people who, whether they're telling the truth or not, have the ability to persuade and to move. This is not to minimize the importance of the ability in and arguing, the ability in debating, the ability in articulating one's case. All those things are important to not only our faith, but our theology. Scripture seems to remind us of our obligation to be able to articulate what is true of us and what we believe in. But I think where the difference lies here is that where the emphasis in the first century, and oftentimes I would imagine 21st century as well, is placed upon the style of the argument rather than the substance. The ability to persuade someone of untruth or falsehood, while that may be mesmerizing and acceptable to some, a Paul, it's unacceptable. And to take that one more step, to mistake the outer style to be more important than substance is a problematic one because there is obviously in the Corinth church particularly that problem as well. Of course, our ideal stage, I would imagine, is to say we want to deliver truth eloquently. Nobody wants to debate that point. But when you, as the Corinth church seem to have faced, individuals who had immense abilities in terms of articulating, yet perhaps the substance was less than true, and others who come to them with truth, oftentimes with fear and trembling, who are not lookers in the eyes of the world, and oftentimes not as polished. In fact, Paul seems to even indicate that while he might have had rhetorical training, he intentionally chooses not to employ that. There's a lot of debate about rhetoric and Paul and so on. It's clear he was capable of engaging in very remarkable and powerful rhetoric. Yet most of the time, reading through his Greek, it's relatively simple. It's not as simple as John's, but it's not as complicated as Luke's or Hebrew's, right? And so he's deliberate about his simplicity. Nobody can argue the kind of moving and powerful nature of often what he says. One can look at the end of chapter 11 of Romans, or for that matter, the moving climax of Romans chapter 8, or the beauty of the poetry found in Colossians chapter 1. All these things are things that Paul can move us with and persuade us with. But one thing he does with Corinth church, and this is the interesting part of Corinthians, is that he knows their natural tendency. He knows their natural tendency of seeing and accepting and reveling in the style over substance, and he approaches them primarily with substance. And he simply says, Jesus Christ and him crucified is the substance and the core of what he brings to them, not sophistry or wisdom or eloquence, because unfortunately the church in Corinth and many in Corinth are unable to distinguish between the two. And he wants them to understand what's important here is the core message of Jesus Christ, which to the world may seem foolish, but to the church is essential for their life. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.